Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, I timed Kyle from the moment he started the big move announcement to the end, and that was five minutes and eight seconds for seven announcements. Not bad. Next time, I think you can shave off a minute. Um, so uh, I, I walked in this morning to, to, to church here and just kind of got some updates on things that were going on. Um, obviously, kind of from a, uh, a view from the background, kind of knew some of the things that were going on, but also was kind of updated on some really difficult things that other members of your church are going through. And so I, I just, I, I really felt um, when we were praying this morning before the service, uh, the three scenarios that were kind of brought to my attention, I felt just kind of like this picture popped into my head and not like some prophetic vision, but really it's just kind of rooted in what scripture tells us. And um, I just imagined, uh, I, I just imagined Jesus in the room with Cindy and Aaron at the hospital, um, there with them, praying with them, interceding with them, crying with them. Um, I heard about a tough scenario with um, just some difficult fostering parenting situations going on. And um, I imagined these two parents sitting on the couch in tears. And I just imagined the Lord Jesus with them, crying with them, feeling their pain. And then um, as simplistic as this might seem, like as one who uh, is way too involved in the logistics and organizational runnings on a Sunday morning, the difficulties of coming to a space when a wedding happened the night before and it being an absolute mess is like insanely chaotic. Um, and I just imagine that the Lord Jesus would be here too at 8 a.m., scrubbing the bathroom, cleaning up. Um, and so uh, that also just extended, like if this is your first time or you're newer, like you're coming in here with something going on in your life too. And I want you to know the greatest thing that, um, that the church has to offer you is this truth that through Jesus, God is with you in the middle of these things. Um, and then beyond this, I just kind of had this, this, this image, too, of all these hard scenarios kind of unfolding like a map. Um, that just is just, this is the, the things that are happening in front of us, and there's great sorrow and there's great pain. But um, I was just reminded as we were praying that we are not supposed to trust the map. We are supposed to trust the one behind it. We are supposed to trust the one that is unfolding everything that is behind the scene, pulling the strings. Um, and so uh, please know that... Um, from a distance, Kyle gives us some updates each week at our network pastors meetings. So please know that we're praying for you all. Um, please know that uh, we, we just want to support you and encourage you the best way we know how. Um, and so we, we are happy to do that. Um, also, if this is your first, first uh, morning, just, just know like this is a church of imperfect people. This is a church where people got a lot of crap going on. Um, and it's really hard. No one in here is perfect. Even if they uh, come in here and kind of claim to be or try to look like they are, it's, it's just not true. So if you're here and you're like, man, I got all dressed up and like, I feel like I need to put a facade or a face on, please know this is not, that's not what we're about. Um, so that's just, please know we're praying for you. Um, we're with you guys. We want to help you the best way we can um, to kind of uh, do a complete 180. Um, I, I want to start this morning with a little bit of a confession. Um, a few weeks ago, I got up behind the pulpit at Coa Brookline, and I was preaching, and I said that the Coa Brookline softball team was better than the Coa Brighton softball team. It's what the record said. It's what all our kind of one-to-one players said. 
And I want you to know Proverbs 29 says only a fool speaks too soon. It's painful. We lost by one. It's fine. It's fine. Okay? Scripture says weep with those who weep. Come on. Like, anyways, there's, there's, this doesn't tie into anything. I'm just, just, I don't know where that's going. I'm just still hurt, all right? Uh, you guys are in a series called Life Together, which ironically enough, uh, whether this was planned or not, Coa Brookline is in a series like that too. Um, and so it's just kind of this idea that we are taking a look at what it means to do life together, what it means to do the Christian life together. And so today we're going to focus on kind of like a very narrow aspect, a certain kind of angle of Christian community. Um, community, it's important in the Christian life, not because it's just a big deal to church leadership or um, because uh, it's in, important for us to be in it, but because it's a big theme we see throughout the Word of God. It's a, you open up the scriptures and you flip through it, you don't see the people of God living in some abstract reality, but rather you see them in various ways and in various places and in very particular ways living out their faith together in a real, tangible way. And so this, this value is not just theory or some theological concept, but it's supposed to look a certain way. Right? It's not just kind of like bare bones behind the scenes. You don't see what's going on. It's supposed to have flesh to it and have a certain look. Right? It's supposed to have certain components and kind of concrete pillars about what the Bible says about community. And so... Today, again, we're just going to talk about a small part of that. We're going to talk about uh, what it looks like to have a life centered on other people. What it looks like to have a life centered on others. And we're going to do that by looking at our passage. Um, So as we kind of dive in, I want to start with a question, like an experiment of sorts. Because I'm, I'm genuinely curious how everyone in the church spends their time when we're done here. What do you do after church? And so um, I'm going to uh, lay out three kind of buckets, three general things that maybe people in the room do. And I'm going to read them all first. And then after that, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Um, and so these buckets aren't perfect, right? I know you might do something else, but basically I'm trying to put you in a box. Let me just put you in a box. Come on. <laughs> so, and there's no positive or negative connotations with these. You might be tempted to kind of hear things positively or negatively. I'm just trying to, to get a bucket that fits everyone. So bucket one, Sunday is a day of lingering for you. You stay long after church, you chat with people, maybe you go uh, to lunch with people from church, and then after that you bounce to someone's house and you hang out, and there's just kind of like no agenda, right? It's just, it's just a day of lingering. So that's bucket one. Bucket two uh, is you go straight home, right? You uh, go home, you make your Sunday afternoon coffee or maybe your Sunday afternoon cocktail, and you need the afternoon to refresh, relax, and get ready for the week, right? If the fall's coming, maybe you throw some football on TV, yeah? That's bucket two. Bucket three is, is that you have a million things going on. I don't say that negatively, but you got stuff to do, right? You got to go to the grocery store. You got to go to campus to study. You got to take your kids to soccer practice. You got to go to work. You got to do this. You got to do that. Like you leave church and you immediately go run errands or you immediately go do some things that need to get done. That's bucket three. So these are the three buckets, okay? I'm going to ask everyone to raise their hands. So you're in bucket one. Sunday is the day of lingering. Raise your hand. One, two. <laughs> All right. Bucket two. Sunday is the day of go home and chill out. Refresh and relax. Yeah. Okay. Bucket three. Okay. So it's, it's, it's actually, at least from here, it looks fairly split. 
Like almost one third, one third, one third. So there's a good amount of diversity in the room over just this simple preference of what do you do after church? What do you want to do after church? And uh, you can extend that into way more than three buckets, of course. There are multiple answers to what you do at church. And then you multiply that by hundreds for all the things that you have preferences for in life. And all of a sudden, we're vastly different people. And so a good question would be, how in the world are we supposed to be in community with each other? Not just like showing up on a Sunday and exchanging pleasantries, but like deep, intimate, meaningful community. Like when the way I structure my life and the thing I center my life around is vastly different than the way you structure your life, how are we supposed to do life together? Right? How are we supposed to interact and uh, uh, do everyday life and walk with the Lord together? And the answer to that question is more obvious than you think, yet it's something that eludes us so much. How can we do the Christian life together? How can we center our lives on others? How do we do life in a meaningful and intimate way? It's simply this, by having our lives centered on God. Because a life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. And that's kind of our main point, our big takeaway for the day. A life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. Now that kind of statement, it comes with a lot of nuance, which maybe means it's not a great main point. I don't know. But number one, I'm not calling other people God. I hope you understand that from the get-go. And number two, that doesn't mean that the inverse is true. That doesn't mean that if you find yourself having a life centered on others, that you necessarily then also have a life centered on God. But rather, what, what, when your life is rightly centered on God, because of what that looks like, it means it's also centered on other people because there's no separating the two. Like if you came up to me and you said, yeah, like I've, I'm a Christian, I've dedicated my life to the Lord and my life is centered on God, but you aren't plugged into community. You aren't serving and loving other people. I'm not like second guessing your salvation and I'm not second guessing a genuine relationship with God, but, but you are missing a key component that really helps the whole thing work. Because a life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. So as we explore that idea, our roadmap for today, um, basically gonna go from just like light theology to practice, fancy way to say that is orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Basically we're gonna talk about what does it mean to have a life centered on God and a life centered on others. We'll, we'll talk about that for a little bit. And then practice, what does it look like? What does it actually look like tangibly to have a life that you center on God and other people? So theology to practice. First, what does it mean to have a life centered on God? Let me first start by defining like the word center, because it's not exactly one-to-one what you're probably hearing. So um, for example, the, the public garden or like government center, kind of the financial district, like downtown Boston, that's kind of like the center of Boston, not, not geographically, but like buzz of activity, right? At any given point in time, there might be the most uh, visitors or the most people kind of down in that area of town. Like that could be described as the center of town. But not every part of Boston is affected by those areas, right? Like there's a billion other things happening in the city that have nothing to do with what's going on down there. In the same way, and in the same sense, God can be the quote-unquote center of our lives, but not reach everything or impact everything. 
Right, so a more helpful way to think about this is picturing God as the gravitational center of your life. Why? Because when something is the gravitational center, everything else revolves around it. Everything else is deeply impacted by it. You could argue that everything else exists because of it. Everything is directed and guided and defined by this gravitational center. And so when I say that God is the center of your life, that is what I mean. I don't mean that he's just the most important thing. I don't mean that the way you spend your time is mostly with God and the things of God. It means that he is the gravitational center. He is the reason for your existence and the reason, the, the reason for your life. Right? He guides and directs and impacts everything and he holds it all together. In other words, God's not meant to be in a box. We're not supposed to have religious corners of our life. Right, what does the proverb say? In all your ways acknowledge him. Want to know what the Hebrew word all means there? All. And so when God is the gravitational center of your life, everything revolves, orbits, is impacted by him and exists because of him and for him. And again, when you live life with God at the gravitational center, it is inseparable from a life with others there too. Galatians 5 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And Paul, who wrote Galatians, and he also wrote our passage in Philippians, when he says that, what he means is that we're no longer under some sort of like oppressive weight or obligation. But in Christ, because of the right relationship we have with God through him, we are now free to serve each other in love, to serve each other in the way that we're meant to. In other words, you were saved to serve. You were given life to serve and love and center yourselves on other people. And when you consider the life of Jesus, you see this perfectly. You see a perfect example of this, of a selfless life, a completely selfless man, right? Who, who knew his mission and he stated it like this, that he's talking about himself here. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And the verses right after our passage, verses like five to 11, paint an incredible picture of this, of a life completely centered on others a life that he completely counts as not his own. Verse seven, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. He gave himself away entirely for the good of other people. In verse eight, it says, God, the son was born in the likeness of men. In humility, he took on flesh. And that's not in the sense that he needed to be humbled in any way. Like you and I maybe get kind of a big head or a big ego and we need to be humbled. No, but rather God, the son who existed in glory, in perfection, in beauty with God, the father took on flesh, became like us, humbled himself and subjected himself to the struggles, the temptations, the hurts that we face today. I don't think we understand how countercultural that is, by the way. We don't intuitively think that the CEO of a massive company should be doing the dirty work. That's why shows like Undercover Boss, they're so intriguing. It's like, I gotta see how kind of 
this person reacts or what the CEO thinks when he does those things. Yet it's so interesting when we see it, when we see a CEO who does that kind of thing or a person who does that kind of thing, we envy it. See, that person really cares about the people. The person's not afraid to kind of get in the dirt and, and deal with the things that everyone else is dealing with. That's Jesus. That's what he does. And when we see, people, when we see Jesus serving people in humility, right, when we see Jesus do things like wash the disciples' feet after they had an argument about who's the greatest disciple, there's some irony there. I think it's easy for us to forget that that's our Lord and Savior, yes. That's a, someone who is fully man, yes. But also that's someone who's fully God. God washed dirty feet. Jesus knew that his life was centered on the good of other people. His life was wholly oriented around other people. But here's the thing, when you read the Gospels, when you kind of look at Jesus's life and the things he did and the things he said and how he spent his time, you see there's actually something kind of behind that. There's almost something to it. Almost as if Christ had a source for his ability and his desire to do these things. Jesus knew he could only do this, he could only be this way, because he was also wholly centered on God. Complete service to other people, complete service to God. And so I know some of us here feel that contrast. Not that it's supposed to be like a 50-50 kind of thing, but it's supposed to be 100-100. Right, some of us, we center ourselves on other people, but we don't center ourselves on God. And what does that lead to? A lot of times, burnout, bitterness, frustration. I'm not suggesting that if you're here and experiencing those things, it's 100% because you're not centering yourself on God. But if you are centering yourself on other people and not God, you're going to feel those things. And the flip side can be too, too, true too. And like, there's no way in which, oh, I'm spending too, time, too much time with God, but rather sometimes there are people that do have a great sense of joy and, and compassion and intimacy with God, but they don't realize that's supposed to spill over to other people. That the joy you feel with the Lord is supposed to be something you share with everyone else. And so if this is true, if this is truly how Jesus lived his life, and for us, in light of our message, in light of this series, other people ought to be the gravitational center of our lives too. It doesn't mean you give them whatever they want. It doesn't mean you exhaust yourself serving other people because that's not what's best for them and that's not what's best for you. And this is where we're going to start to transition from, from theology to practice, right? So that was some, some light theology of like, what does it mean to have a life centered on God and a life centered on others? And now we're going to talk about a little bit of like, what does that look like? What does it look like other people being the gravitational center of your life? There's a million answers to this. You think about all the one another's in the New Testament, serve one another, love one another, pray for one another, give to each other, weep with each other. There's a million ways you could paint this picture, but I want to focus on one thing that I think we see in our passage. And it's this, it's completely laying down your preferences for the good of other people. That's what I think part of our passage, a lot of our passage is communicating. Completely laying down your preferences for the good of other people. Not 
100% of the time, in all ways. What I mean is a disposition of being ready and willing to lay down your preferences. I'm afraid of, as I, as I look at our city, I look at our culture, I look at our country, and even I look at our churches to some extent, I, I, I don't see a lot of times people ready and willing to do that. But Philippians 2 exhorts us to do this. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Here's what this can mean. When you meet someone that has a hundred different buckets than you, a million different buckets than you, like we look at those scenarios and we're so tempted to think, yeah, well, we just don't vibe. We don't click. We don't mesh. We just kind of don't fit together. Now, if I can be honest, I'm, I'm preaching myself here just as much. Every time I hear that, it saddens me. Like, and I'm not saying that we need to be best buddies with everyone. Right, but can I just call all of us out, myself included here? Like, what a selfish mindset. And, and more than that, in these moments, functionally, you have a very small view of God. In these moments, functionally, I have a very small view of God. Because the, the commonality and the common identity you have in Jesus is stronger than any differences. Ephesians 2 tells us how this happened. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Key in on this part. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You want to know why the early church, we read passages like Acts 2 and we think what an envious community. People are giving to other people. People are sacrificing for other people. You want to know why they got along, why they really succeeded at this core value of community? It's not because they're in the same life stage. It's not because they rooted for the same football team. It's not because they spent their time in similar ways or because they like the same kind of beer. You want to know what it was? The common identity and belief that Jesus is Lord. They knew that that was the strongest possible binding factor that binded them together for eternity. And because of that, they could do life together, no matter the differences. Can you imagine Jesus? Like someone comes up to him and, and genuinely wants to kind of follow him and, and be his uh, disciple. Can you imagine him kind of like, I don't really vibe. So you do you from a distance. Now I'm going to do me over here. We'll cross paths once on a Sunday. I'll shake your hand. And that's that. Let me get a lot of us in the room right now. When someone comes up to me and says, I don't click very well with my community group. So tempted to ask, like, have you tried serving them lately? Have you tried loving them lately, selflessly? And let me be more descriptive. Have you tried serving them in the way they would want to be served and not just the way you want to serve them? And again, like there's tons of caveats with this. This is leaning too unhealthily into this kind of mindset in a certain way is the way that abuse is enabled or the way that people are burned out. 
And so please don't hear me as painting this as like 100% of the time, this is what you need to do. I remember uh, distinctly a CG in the past. Some of you in this room were part of the CG. Um, there was someone in the CG that didn't click, didn't vibe, didn't mesh, didn't fit um, with the rest of the CG. All of us were kind of in the same life stage, and uh, we did very similar things, but this person kind of didn't. And um, I remember distinctly she sent out an invite, inviting us into something she enjoyed doing, which, if this is your cup of tea, I'm not trying to offend you. Um, but she invited everyone over to come read at her apartment silently. Just kind of read. I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. But I, I re- and if this is you, I'm, if this is like your thing, I'm really sorry. I, it's fine. I'm, I'm more for that nowadays than I was back then. Um, but no one went. And it's because that was no one's preference. Do you think like she felt welcomed? She felt loved by her fellow quote-unquote brothers and sisters in Christ? It wasn't that everyone was too busy. Because we had a preference. We weren't ready to lay that preference down. This person, praise God, is still following the Lord, but at a different church. Another example, I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, we were, we were really challenged in this area. And not that we did this perfectly, but we made the intentional decision, like going back to the three buckets after church, what do you do, that um, this was before we had our kid. Um, like, hey, like I love going to Trader Joe's, getting lunch to go, going home, opening an Oktoberfest, sitting on my couch and watching football. But we had this realization, when we always do that, it costs other people. So we made the intentional decision like, hey, when the opportunity arises, we're going to be ready to extend our day, right? To go to lunch with friends and then maybe go to someone's place and and hang with no agenda. And we we did that many times. And even now, like we still try to do that, even though we have a kid whose nap time is 12 p.m. It's fantastic. You should try it sometime. (laughs) We still try really hard to do that because it's a small way we can love other people and a small way we can lay down our preferences, And we didn't do this perfectly, but what's interesting, you want to know what happens when you start doing that? Your preferences start to change. And I mean that in two ways. One, we actually started to desire this other bucket and the way other people did life. And two... What I mean when I say that our preferences changed, I don't mean that we didn't want to do the things we originally did, Trader Joe's and football. But rather, what I mean is that we started counting others as greater than ourselves. What changed was that the Spirit of God, supernaturally, in and through our hearts, grew our care and compassion for other people. And quite frankly, prompted us to not be so dang selfish with our time. Here's the thing too, as you get closer with other people as you do this, if they're in the right mindset, they too will start to lay down their preferences for you. It doesn't always work that way. Again, verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What I'm saying is your default posture should be to lay down your preferences for other people. The way you spend your time, 
the way you structure your life. Others have to be the gravitational center. That's why the, the, the things that we talked about, that Kyle talked about from the stage, things like after church meal, like homie, that's not so you can get lunch and jet out of here. That's so you can spend time with other people. You can interact with your church family. And I'm not, I'm not knocking, like I, I know sometimes you genuinely have to go. I get that. But I know a lot of us in the room, we don't genuinely have to go. It's just our preference to go. Or things like the big move. Anyone here moved on September 1st before? Oh, it's way more of you than that. Come on. Any of you moved in Boston in general? Let's just like that. Yeah. It's just like a horrible experience. It's horrible. And there is nothing I would prefer more than to not be out on September 1st. But it's this idea of laying down your preferences for the good of other people. I can tell you for a fact that the Lord used people from COA who helped someone random move, they used that first interaction to save that person. What if the Lord wants to do that through the, through the way you step in and serve on Friday? Or are you going to stop it because you say it's not your preference? That's why things like community group are so important too. Right? It's not just like, oh yeah, the pastor's telling us we got to join a community group. Like I get that, but it's twofold. Right? One, if you're here and you consider yourself a Christian and you're not part of a CG, I already said this, you're missing a key ingredient. And when we talk about what it means to be part of the church, what it means to really be part of a COA church, it really means to also be plugged into a community group. It's not like you should just check the box for your Christian life by going to a community group. No, you're missing out if you don't go. And it's not that community group's the greatest thing ever. It's not. I've been in a lot of them. A lot of them, not great. But this is the way that life together primarily happens. And secondly, we hit on this already some when it comes to community groups, but when you don't think you need a community group, or you think you're too busy, what you're saying is that community group is about you and what you can get out of it. Right? That's failing to acknowledge that, that other people in the group would likely benefit from your presence. Like what if going to ch- some church group or some church event wasn't just about you and wasn't just about what we could get out of it? But what if it was for the good of other people that are there so we could love and serve and show hospitality and interact with other people? So you could welcome new folks. Like I, I know September 1st, lots of people moving, like especially this part of the city. I'm sure you already have had a lot of newer folks the past few weeks. And you guys know the next few weeks, you will have more and more newer folks. What does it look like for you to get involved so you can welcome them well? My goal here is not to guilt you into attending everything. But there's a big difference between not going to something because you have healthy boundaries and you need rest and not going to something because it's not your preference or you don't vibe with those people or that thing. 
as I was kind of working through this idea, the idea of middle ground kept coming to mind. The middle ground, right? You might be tempted to say that people with different preferences, we should meet somewhere in the middle. But I would argue when it comes to these kind of things, most of the time, not every time, when it comes to these kind of things, there is no middle ground. There is no meaningful middle ground. And say that for two reasons. When we say we want the middle ground, what we're saying is, I want to find the way I can serve you the least. I want to find the way that costs me, us, the least. Secondly, it's quite simply, true love demands you defer to the other person. Usually when we want the middle ground, it's because we want the cheapest form of sacrifice possible. Again, more caveats, that's not true with all things, but it's true with many things. A tangible example of this, Ashlyn, my wife, and I, um, we're on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to spending money. Can you guess who's who? Just talk to me for like five minutes, you'll know. Like for us, to be honest, there's not a middle ground in that area, as well as many other parts of our marriage. Like what it actually looks like to serve the other person well to have our life centered on the other person well is to completely lay down our preferences for the good of the other person. Back and forth, back and forth. And so what that means, even though sometimes I want to buy lunch out and even though I think we got the money and I think we should spend more money in dining out, like out of love and care and compassion for my wife, I will lay down my preference. I won't go get that steak bomb sub with mayo, lettuce, tomato, ketchup. And for her, that means even though maybe we spent more than she would like, she, out of, with healthy boundaries and, and wanting to, to steward our resources well, she says, you can go get the steak bomb. You can get the large steak bomb. <laughs> so as we start to close, you might hear this and say, well, is it just a stalemate then? Like, if everyone's supposed to be laying down their preferences... That awkward after church circle, what do you want to do? Where do you want to do? What do you do? Where you want to go to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to go to eat? I don't have any preference. Well, let's go where you want to go. I feel that way. There does need to be an intentional alternating cycle of sorts. It needs to be you serve others, and then you let others serve you. You lay down your preferences for others, and then others lay down your pref- their preferences for you. That's what healthy alternation looks like. And so, the penultimate answer to what does it look like to be in community, to do life together with people that are vastly different than you, is to totally and completely sacrifice your preferences. It sounds radical, it sounds dramatic, but this is what Jesus did. What does it look like to do life together in a meaningful and intimate way? It's to have your life centered on God because a life centered, a life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. It's not pursuit of the middle ground. It's pursuit of serving one another. A life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. We see this perfectly exemplified in Jesus' life as we talked about already. But the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate laying down of preferences that Jesus had for other people is when he went to the cross. He took all our sin, all our shame, he broke his body, and he bled, and he died. And then he rose from the dead. 
And if you're not clear, this is the gospel. This is the entirety of what we are about. This is the only way to be in right standing with God is by trusting in that sacrifice that Jesus made. And so every week we take communion to to, to remember this, to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, to remember the fact that Jesus perfectly had a life centered on God and a life centered on others. And so at any point during this closing song, there'll be communion in the back. Um, You can go and and, and take the um, elements and come back to your seat and take them. This is the one part of service that we say, because of what this represents, that we truly believe this is only for people who have professed faith in Christ. And so if that's not you, just encourage you to stay in your seat and just ponder this man, this Jesus who lived a selfless life. A life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. Let's pray.